became a part of the scripture. The word Nahum means comfort or compassion. So evidently he was a compassionate man and uh, sought to comfort his people as God uh, intervened and destroyed their enemy. Now the chief deity, or the chief god of Nineveh was the bull god with the face of a man and the wings of a bird. And you find that in many of the uh, the idols that have been dug up and discovered, they were part animal, part man, and maybe had wings. That's pretty common among those false gods. And of course, the evolutionists today would have us believe that we're just really a higher form of an animal, uh, that man has evolved uh, from, from some kind of animal. Now, the average age of uh, great civilizations has been about 200 years. And it's, we're over 200 year old now in our country. And this is uh, the path that nations take, or kingdoms take. First of all, from bondage to spiritual faith. This happened to Israel. And then from spiritual faith to courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, and from apathy back to bondage. And that's been the history of man for 6,000 years or so. So we begin our study, the book of Nahum, and we have uh, uh, the first chapter uh, dealing with uh, God is jealous Nineveh will fall. And uh, we find God declaring his anger in the first eight verses. Now, in verse 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Well, we find that uh, Nahum's message was both a burden and a vision. Uh, he felt something and he saw something. And so he describes it for us. And we find in days gone by that God dealt with man and his prophets in various ways, uh, sometimes in visions and dreams and sometimes by an angelic appearance. Uh, so here we have the subject is laid out. Of course, if you understand how they wrote in those days, and we've described this in times past, uh, that they use scrolls. And that's why that some of the writings of Paul, in fact, probably most of the writings, you have, he'll mention, the author is mentioned first. Now, we, of course, we write, books are bound together in pages, and, uh, and uh, then at the end, you'll find the author a lot of times. But in the scroll, it was necessary to, to learn the subject and the author at the beginning as the scroll was unread and unrolled and read. And you have, he lays out the subject, the burden of Nineveh. That's the subject he's going to talk about. And the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, so we have the author is laid out for us here at the beginning. Now in verse 2, he says, God is jealous. Now, jealous, there's two kinds of jealousy. 
Jealousy is a sin. It means being envious of what others have and wanting to possess it. And God uh, uh, rebukes that in uh, the book of, uh, in the giving of the Ten Commandments there, in the, uh, the commandment against covetousness. But jealousy is a virtue if it means cherishing, cherishing what we have and wanting to protect it. And in the book of uh, Exodus 20 and verse 2, verse 5 rather, 20 verse 5, let me, it's the Ten Commandments are being given there. And he said, Thou shalt, talking about idolatry, not make graven images and all. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So God warns against idolatry and says, God is a jealous God. Now is that a sin? No, that's not a sin. That means God is jealous over his own children, his own people, and, and wants to, to protect them. And so that's the kind of jealousy that Nahum has in mind as well. God is jealous. And then he says, and the Lord revenges. You know, payday does come. Uh, God doesn't always pay off every Friday, but God does pay. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We find in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Let me read that verse if I can find it here. To me belongeth vengeance. That's page 253. And recompense their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things that shall come upon them make haste. You know, it may seem that that evil men are triumphing. And it may seem that people are getting by with their sin, but God said their foot shall slide in due time. And vengeance belongs to the Lord. In Psalm 94 and verse 1, Psalm 94. Verse 1, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. And then in Romans 12, 19, he says, uh, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So God says, You let me handle it. And I have learned, sometimes the hard way, but I have learned that if you'll let God fight your battles, that God will take care of it in due time. And we would do well to, do, to learn that lesson. So uh, vengeance. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. Well, the Assyrians had been bitter enemies of Israel for a long time. And they were very, very ruthless and very wicked. Uh, you know, having no compassion seemingly. And uh, it seemed that, that God was not doing anything. In fact, when Jonah went and they repented, God gave them another chance. But uh, 
in time, in due time, God destroyed them. And now was the time. The Lord revenges in his fury. The message of Nahum is not a message of repentance. The message of Nahum is uh, payday has arrived. And vengeance, the day of God's vengeance is here. We're living in the day of grace tonight and God gives mercy and grace and is patient and long-suffering, but I want to say to you, in due time, this day will end. And people will, people will experience the wrath of a holy God as they cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him that sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. The day of vengeance will come. And so he says the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. You know, uh, uh, the wrath of God and the anger of God is, is unknown by a lot of people. And it's because of presumption that, uh, that God is a God of grace and mercy, and he is, may I say. But God must judge sin, and he hates sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, uh, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, a righteous anger against sin is, is, is not wrong. And we ought to hate sin and we ought to get mad about sin. And we ought to want it out of our lives. And God says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That is mighty good advice to live by. You want to destroy your marriage? Then go to bed pouting mad at one another. You know, that'll do it. God says, before you go to sleep every night, make sure the books are up to date. You may have to meet God for the morning. And uh, don't, don't uh, you know, uh, the, the success of relationships, where it be in home or church or our neighborhoods or workplace or whatever, is you forgive quickly. And you repent quickly. Uh, you know, because we're all a bunch of sinners, every last one of us, and we're going to mess up. <laughs> and the key is, when you mess up, admit it, and forgive one another quickly. And you'll have a good relationship. See, the, the Bible's right after all, isn't it? <laughs> As it always is in every issue of life, the Bible's always right. Well, uh, let's move on. Now, uh, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the, in the clouds of the dust of his feet. Well, because God is slow to anger, that's what I was talking about. Many people are presumptuous and think they can go on forever. They can treat God anyway and never have to pay. But that's not true. He is slow to anger, but he is great in power. And uh, it's kind of like they, uh, they said the biggest mistake that uh, Japan made was when they attacked Pearl Harbor. And they woke up a sleeping giant, a, a country that really didn't want to, to have to uh, be involved, but, uh, uh, you know, was forced in, into, into war. And uh, so... 
The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power. And he can deal with whatever issue that arises. Uh, God slowed anger. He waited over 100 years. He waited 120 years in the days of Noah. And uh, the Bible says the earth is wicked there in Genesis 6 and verse 3. Genesis 6 and verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. God gave him a long time. But to be reminded, nobody got on the ark except Noah and his family. And they had ample opportunity. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They could have repented. They could have believed God, could have believed Noah. God had left the door open seven days after Noah went on. And they still wouldn't get on the boat. Until one day, God shut the door and sent the rain. And probably then they wanted on, but it's too late. The door is shut. And that's what's going to happen one day. You know, uh, it's hard for me to understand how people can delay this matter of salvation, especially in the days in which we live. And uh, I, guess, I guess man thinks that... Uh, that there'll always be another chance. I mean, isn't it strange? You talk to you talk to a twenty-year-old man, or you talk to an eighty-year-old man, and they always think, "Well, another day, some other time." But one day the door will close, and it'll be too late to get on the ark. First Peter three twenty, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, because of that statement, some believe that the baptistry saves you. Well, listen, they were saved from drowning uh, because they was on the ark and the water bore them up. The water that judged and destroyed the wicked saved Noah and his family because they was on the ark. They was in Christ. And he says, the like figure, wherein to even baptism does also now save us. Well, that kind of contradicts, seems to contradict what I just said, but notice in parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not talking about water, well, you know, the uh, physical water that cleanses the flesh. I'm talking about the baptism, I believe the greater baptism of the Holy Spirit that is uh, by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not a complete uh, uh, discussion of those verses, but that's what he's talking about now. In uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, 8 verse 11 he says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Man thinks he's escaped. Well, now he says, uh, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He's simply talking about the, the power of God and the fear that a storm can bring. Now, I've never been in an actual tornado or a hurricane as such. 
when we lived in Catawba County, there was, I, I've seen the after effects of it, and I've heard, heard the wind blowing pretty, pretty bad. And uh, so, uh, you know, pine trees look like they've been like toothpicks turned, you know, just uh, uh, twisted off. But uh, a revelation of God's mighty power. He hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. An awesome, the awesomeness of God. And then verse 4, He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Probably here referring to the Red Sea and the Jordan that God brought them across. And... Uh, uh, of course, it also could refer to, to the drought that had come. But he says, Bashan, and, and that seems more likely because he says, Bashan languisheth and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. Now, these were the three fertile areas of that land. And, of course, when you dry up the water, a fertile area can become a desert. And, uh, you know, we are... We had a little rain, thank God for it, recently, a couple of weeks ago. But I noticed the creeks are back down pretty much like they were. It's only short-lived, didn't really solve our drought problem. And they say we've been in prolonged drought for four or five years now. And who knows when it'll end. But uh, how dependent we are on water. And so God... Uh, he has used drought in, in days gone by, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to warn people and to chastise people and nations. And sometimes uh, it gets the attention, sometimes it don't. Now he says, he, again, he talks about God's power. The, nation, the mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Well, the earthquakes and, and the volcanoes are all testimonies of the power of God. Uh, you know, I've never, I've seen pictures on TV of volcanoes, uh, and, uh, but I've never been real close to one. Uh, never, never been in a, in a bad earthquake, but uh, there are places in the earth and this nation that, that have dealt with that. Now, we have a revelation of that in Mount Sinai when God came down and given the law. In uh, the book of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, uh, he says, uh, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So here we have fire and earthquake and all this is, is re revealing of God's power. And in uh, Hebrews, he uh, speaks further in relation to this. Hebrews 12 and verse 18 through 21. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burn with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. 
at the mighty presence of God. Now, uh, you know, how is people going to stand before such power one day when Jesus comes to judge? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what he says. It's page 1271. I'm not giving you time to find it, I know. I need to slow down here a little bit. First, what does 2 Thessalonians 1 8? In flame and fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I'm thinking about the bomb that was dropped on. Hiroshima, Japan, or Hiroshima, Japan, and then Nagasaki, and the thousands of people that were consumed instantaneous. They said the heat was so great that the flesh literally melted and run off of the bones, as described in the book of Zechariah. And the, if I remember my numbers correctly, the second hydrogen bomb that the United States tested was 750 times more powerful than that bomb that we have in our arsenal, even, even bombs worse than that. And we live in a world, you know, a very explosive society, and we live in a world of terror and terrorists and, and crazy people, and only the hand of God Almighty God keeps it from, from all falling into the wrong hands. And that's the great concern that about have about old Saddam Hussein. You know, of him being able to get a bomb of such destructive power that could annihilate a city. And so it's very real. And so uh, he, he talks about this power, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. If man can do that, think of what God can do when he comes to judge. And then in 2 Peter, you say, how, how, what kind of power does God have? How, how bad will it get one day? Let's look at it in 2 Peter 3, page 13, 19, if you'd like to look at it. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking far and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. How much power does God have? Enough power to melt this earth. And the heavens will explode, a massive explosion, as the atmosphere is burned. That day's coming. It won't come until the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But... Uh, he tells us here that seeing then that all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? I want to tell you tonight, the only thing that really matters is living for God. Knowing Him as your own Savior, 
and spending your life and your energy for the next world. And if you, if you get your focus off of that, then you, you get distracted. What manner of persons ought you to be? Seeing these things are going to be dissolved. Verse 13, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what I'm looking for. I don't look for anything but trouble from here on out. But my folk, my eyes are not on this world. My eyes are on the world to come wherein dwelleth righteousness. The hills of melt, the earth is burned at his presence. The world and they that dwell therein, Nahum says, verse 5. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. You know what, you know what fire does, don't it? It purifies. Take a needle, burn it, and you can use that needle to pick out a thorn or something in your hand. I've done that. And, uh, but uh, it's purified. He comes as a refiner's fire. Verse 7, the Lord is good. Aren't you glad for that? He, he, he's been speaking a message of, a message of judgment, but he, he, he turns now to the positive. The Lord's good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knoweth them that trust in him. You know, for the ungodly, he's coming in judgment, but for the saved, he's coming in, in, in rejoicing and blessing and going home to glory. It's a wholly different, wholly different attitude. God is a God of wrath, but he's also good. We'll take care of those that are his. He knows them that trust him. And I'll tell you, the Lord knows those that are really his. In the book of 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, Verse 18 said they would say the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal of the Lord, knoweth them that are his, that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Well, some may throw up their hands in disgust and quit. Some may lose their faith. But God, the foundation of God stands sure, and the Lord knows them that are his. And you know, the real, the real McCoy, as they used to say, that will reveal itself when you put, them, put the fire to it. You put the fire, you put the fire to wood, hay, and stubble, it don't last long, kind of like a house just out the road here toward where I live, burned just uh, a couple of weeks ago or so. And boy, I'll tell you, it's amazing how quickly a fellow been working on it for a long time. And it's amazing how quickly that house was gone. I mean gone, nothing left, just brick walls standing. The fire, fire is a dreadful thing. Uh, but uh, if it's going
gold, silver, and precious stones, the fire won't destroy it. It remains. The foundation of God stands sure. Psalm 109, no, 107, pardon me, 107. You know your handwriting is bad when you can't read your own writing. And mine's getting worse all the time. 107, verse 1 and 2, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. We have a great God, and we ought to, we ought to say so. Well, verse 8, and we'll get that and try to close out here. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Well, the Babylonian army was able to take the city of Nineveh. History tells us when the Tigris River overflowed and washed away the floodgates of the city and the foundation of the palace. And they marched in and took the city. They thought they were impenetrable, that they, you could not penetrate that city. It was so, so well walled and, and secured by water, but that that they had their faith in became their enemy. They talked about fire. Water is another thing that can be very destructive. I remember, I can't remember what year it was, we had, had, a, had a pretty bad flood. And I know we were living in Yancey County. And I went, you know, they told me about uh, uh, Jack's Creek, was it? When was it? 77, yeah. I came in 76, so I know it wasn't long after that. And I went over there, and of course the road was washed in two, and that's how devastating. A brick church, and the, the bricks were gone. Oh, everything was gone down the river. And people, you know, you, boy, I'd like to build me a nice, I'd like to build me a nice house right beside this creek. You hear that bubbling water go by. Now, they don't think that creek could become one of the worst enemies one day when the flood comes down there, comes, comes down through there. Well, that's what happened to Nineveh. The Tigris washed them away, really, a portion of the city, they tell us. The foundations of the palace, and this was recorded by the Greek historian C-T-E-S-I-A-S. -E and I took Greek, but uh, I'm not sure of the pronunciation of that fellow. The 5th century B.C. Well, it's what Nahum said would happen with an overrunning flood. He'll make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. So God, God has ways of, of uh, fighting our battles, doesn't he? He has ways of getting rid of our enemies. And so he, took the, he sent the flood and the Babylonians were able to come. And it's amazing. The Babylonians didn't learn their lesson as they were world empire. And uh, oh, Sodom Hussein, he... Nebuchadnezzar is his hero. Nebuchadnezzar, who he would, he, who he, he wanted to, he killed, and who he wanted to, he kept alive. 
And that's about like old Saddam Hussein is. If he, if he hears any word, they were telling on the news that, uh, that uh, they had a meeting, some of the key men and his government there, the military leaders. He's a military dictator. And, and uh, one, one of them said something he shouldn't have said. And so when he dismissed them, uh, he told this fellow, said, you stay behind a little while. You stay behind. And he shut the door and they heard a gunshot and they never heard from him anymore. That's how Saddam Hussein deals with people that would speak something, a word against him. It's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar was. He was that kind of a fellow. And God had to, uh, you know, had to humble him too <laughs> until he realized that God was still on the throne and he was still running the show. And old Saddam Hussein's going to learn the same thing, I'm afraid, that God still is in control, though it may seem he's not. And, uh, but anyway, Babylon and their big drunken party, recorded by Daniel there, they, they fell too. And they, uh, the enemy was able to divert the river, they tell us, history tells us, and they marched into the city and took it. Just like God took, took care of Nineveh, he, he raises up who he will, he puts down who he will. And we as America, we occupy this place in the world as long as God wills and chooses for us to be there. And God can cut us down before morning if he wants to. And we better realize that, that God's on the throne. And he puts people in power he lets them stay there as long as he wants them. And uh, if he wills otherwise, he can take them down. Just like he did Nineveh, just like he did Babylon, just like he'll do Antichrist and all these others. Well, darkness, he talks about the darkness here, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. You know, darkness is a terrible thing, isn't it? And uh, it's good for, you know, some people like to work the third shift. I worked third shift about a year, and that's enough to do me a lifetime. I think the day's made for working, the night's made for sleeping. But anyway, some people like it. That's fine. Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in Matthew 22, 22 and verse 13 then said the king to the servants bind him hand and foot and take him away cast him into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth you know uh, one reason I don't want to go to hell I don't want to go to a place where it's always dark can you imagine what that would do weeping gnashing of teeth in eternal darkness. That's the result. That'll be the end of the ungodly, the unsaved. Okay, let's bow our heads.